Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer, engineer, and mixer Brian Maloof. First of all, the music industry is drowning in data. According to a Think Tank report, there's an historic number of income sources that are happening, but what that means is that the data points are growing by literally trillions at a time. Just in the last couple of years, it's up 4,500%. The big problem here is the fact that the music industry can't keep up, especially publishing. Publishing has a problem with poor data management and antiquated royalty systems, so everything is really inefficient. Plus, there's no standardization across the globe for how this is all handled, and it just makes it really, really hard especially if you're on some sort of a manual system, which some smaller publishers are. Just to give you an idea, last year there were 872.6 billion streams, and that was up 22%, and they're expecting that to keep on going up because there were 341 million paid subscribers, but they think that's going up to 1.22 by the end of the decade. So the good thing for the music business is the fact that that's a whole lot more money than it's ever had before. The bad part for artists is that you can't keep track of it. You don't know who you're supposed to pay it to. You can either lose it altogether, maybe it won't be found, or maybe it'll take a long time to get to you. Now, it's even crazier because if you look at UGC, which is user-generated content, 49% of all Facebook videos have at least 10 seconds of music. For Instagram, that's 58%, and YouTube is about 30%, and that doesn't include TikTok or Twitch or podcasts or home fitness, which means there's all of these places where music could be making money, but isn't because no one can keep track of it. And on top of all that, there's a lot of complexities when it comes to payments, because more and more songs have more and more songwriters. You look at the different royalty rates that are happening around the world, the different royalty systems, the fact that there's no global identifier, and wow, it's getting really, really difficult. Now, some technologists have said this is a perfect situation to bring in blockchain, but that doesn't really work, especially with music publishing. And the reason why is if someone makes a mistake on the metadata with blockchain, you can't go back and fix it. So all of these companies are kind of faced with a dilemma. And that's, should they build a new modern system to take care of all this? And that could take as long as 10 years, and there's nothing for sure that says it's actually going to work. Or should they buy something off the shelf and, again, get something that's sort of incomplete and will take a long time? And it just puts everybody in a bind. So who is getting the short shift on this? Well, it's artists and songwriters, because, like I say, it's either going to take a lot longer to get paid or there's going to be money that's going to be lost in the meantime. And most artists and songwriters are not making enough as it is. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now here's a good one for you. 
Do you know what the 10 most expensive albums of all time are? Well, you might be able to guess a couple, but I bet you don't know them all. So let's count them down from number 10. By the way, this is from a website called Ranker. Number 10 is the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and this came in at $400,000. Now, of course, it was 25,000 pounds in 1967 money when it was done, which equates to about 400 grand now. The band spent over 700 hours on this album, which for a long time, that was the record. Number nine is from 1991. It's my bloody Valentine's Loveless, $500,000. Number eight is Metallica's The Black Album, which came in at a million dollars. Now, the thing about that is it sold 16 times platinum, so that was a good thing. The previous one, My Bloody Valentine's Loveless, actually didn't do that well. Number seven, The Darkness, One Way Ticket to Hell and Back, comes in at $1.3 million. And you know what? Actually didn't sell that well. Number six is Fleetwood Mac's Tusk at $1.4 million. And the funny thing here is the band says that they spent about the same amount of time on Rumors as they did on Tusk. The only difference was they were in a brand new studio that was built just for them in which they're paying a premium rate. So that's why the price shot up there. It's from 1979. It only sold about 2 million albums, which sounded like a big letdown after Rumors, which sold at the time about 16 million. Number five is Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy at $3 million, and the release date was 2010. This is double platinum and won three Grammy Awards, so that's pretty good. I don't know if it's worth $3 million. It wasn't so much studio time, it was all the amenities, as Kanye apparently did it all in Hawaii in a glass-enclosed mansion, and he had two private chefs the entire time, one to prepare hot food and the other just for cold food. Number four is Def Leppard's Hysteria at $4.5 million. thing about it is, the album sold 25 million copies worldwide, and I think any record label and any artist will take that. Number three was Garth Brooks' Chris Gaines at $5 million. Now, you might not remember Chris Gaines, but this was the alter ego of Garth Brooks. He was the biggest artist in the world at the time and thought he'd come out with a rock record under a different name. Didn't quite work. Even though it did sell a couple million, he was normally selling six or seven million dollars. And as a result, the president of the label and everybody else got blown out. Number two is Guns N' Roses, Chinese Democracy at $13 million. And this went on and on and on for 10 years. So much so that Geffen Records filed multiple lawsuits against the band. It basically said, look, if you would have delivered it seven years ago, we wouldn't be in this place. Now, it sold a million copies, but it was way under what anyone had predicted. Mostly because they waited so long to release it. And what is the most expensive album of all time? Invincible by Michael Jackson. $30 million it took. This sold a lot, but it wasn't like Thriller. And as a result, it became uh, somewhat of a disappointment to not only Michael Jackson, but everybody else around him. So those are the top 10 most expensive albums of all time. My guest this week is Brian Maloof, who's a multi-platinum American producer, engineer, and mixer who's worked with Michael Jackson, Queen, Madonna, Pearl Jam, Stevie Wonder, and other world-known artists. 
Also serving as an executive at several major record labels over the years, his work has amassed a total of 53 gold, platinum, and double platinum records to date. Brian is a true veteran of the global music industry. He's enjoyed a 30-plus year career on the production and executive side of the music business. In 1994 to 2005, he was Senior Vice President of A&R for RCA Records in New York, and later Vice President and Head of A&R at Walt Disney Records, where he worked with artists such as Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, and the Jonas Brothers. Brian now owns Cookie Jar Recording in Sherman Oaks, California, and works as an independent producer and mixer. He's also the co-founder of Juki, an emerging startup that hosts the Juki Music Awards, a contest open to artists and songwriters that started last summer and runs four times a year. During the interview, we spoke about working for Michael Jackson, engineering for a recording legend, why drummers and bass players make the best engineers, transitioning into the world of A&R, and much more. I spoke with Brian via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Tell me how you got started in the business. Uh, just as a musician, you know, I fell in love with uh, the idea of playing the drums at a really early age, uh, like age seven, and took a couple years to get my parents to get me lessons. But I played drums all through and uh, up through about sophomore year of high school and, and, and uh, began playing other instruments at that time, uh, bass, guitar, piano, flute, baritone horn trombone i just kind of went crazy and uh I, I because i was interested in arranging so i wanted to get uh, to play a few instruments to see what it was like to write for them and then in college of course i flunked out of my first uh, audition for for as a music performance major at uh, cal state northridge so i realized that neglect of the the legit pursuit of my drumming and percussion career cost me uh, a summer of woodshedding with a guy called Lloyd McCausland. Uh, and Lloyd worked at Remo and he was a percussionist and he um, taught for Joel Leach privately for, for Joel Leach's private students out at Cal State Northridge. And uh, after a summer with Lloyd, I, I got into the program, I excelled and then I got tired of counting rests went to start playing uh, uh, drum set again, uh, got into a band, uh, started a band actually, and did that f- until my knees wore out. My knees wore out, and I guess I had arthritic knees to begin with, but uh, uh, the drumming exacerbated them, and then I was the guy in the band that did the demos, and I did the PA from the stage, and I bought the microphones, and I researched the gear, and I just uh, we, we had acquired a producer over the years of being in a band, and I called him on a Saturday morning. I'll never forget the, the Saturday morning of my last night playing, and I asked if he could help me start a new career as an engineer. And he got me a job, uh, as uh, not a job, but, a, but an internship or apprenticeship at Eldorado Recording Studios. And that was actually the first place I ever recorded as a musician as well. So that was that's kind of a wild tie-in, and then I was at El Dorado for almost a year, uh, learning how to be an engineer uh, from Dave Jordan and his assistant Sarko De La Rosa, and uh, and then I got uh, my first real job at Can Am as a chief engineer in nineteen, I think it was eighty, it was either eighty or eighty-one, and uh, and that's where I began my career. That's where I sort of got all my first clients and um, started things off. It's funny, I just did a session yesterday at Capitol 
with my very first paying client. Wow. Uh, whatever it was, 40 years ago, uh, Kim Bullard, the keyboardist for Elton John and lots of other people, uh, Poco. I mean, he's just done everything. And uh, uh, we're still in touch after all these years, still doing sessions together. I bought a console from Kim. Did you really? Yes, I did. Oh, how funny. <laughs> Small Recently? world. Oh, no, it would have been um, 25 years ago. Oh, a long time ago. Yeah. When he had the studio at his house in Woodland Hills, probably. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was us. I've recorded on that console. A Soundcraft 2400, I think. Something like that, yeah. You know, it's funny you should bring up Can-Am because I was thinking of it the other day and I had never worked there, but I had been there a number of times. And for some reason it was like, I wonder whatever happened to that because that was one of the hot places, especially for R&B for such a long time. And then all of a sudden I didn't hear anything about it anymore. I can tell you what happened. Yeah. So... So me and the owner built the, he, he built the studio, the first one, the front room. And then when I joined in 80, uh, or it was either 80 or 81. Now I can't remember. I rebuilt that whole studio, the whole live room, bought a new, you know, did new console, new tape machine. I just said, he was down in the dumps. He was going to sell it. His original partner kind of sold him out and kind of betrayed him. And he was ready to cash it in. And I brought in a whole new energy. So then we built the back room about three or four years later. Vince Van Hoff was the, we had a proper architect this time, not just me nailing wood up on the walls, but we had Vince Van Hoff do the back room. I moved to New York in 94. And when I left in 94, about, I think six months later, Larry, the, the former owner, leased it to Dr. Dre for Death Row Records. And they were there for five years. So nobody, it was just a lockout lease. It's, this is now your place, both rooms for Dre. And then Dre left and Larry kind of made a go of it again, making it um, a, a studio for hire. Uh, I was still in New York. And when I moved to LA in 05, he was still doing that, you know, getting sort of some piecemeal clients. And I even rented it for a day from him. And did something in there, some recording. And then he leased it to, sold it really, sold the lease, sold the equipment to Chris Lord Algae. So it was his room for the last, so I was here probably the last five to seven years, maybe seven years. And he leased out the front, the room that I built to Mike Elizondo for most of the time he was there. And then Elizondo moved out. And now just about maybe two, three months ago, a mixed by Ali took the whole place over. Wow. And he bought out the equipment. I guess he bought the equipment from Chris and took over the, the lease. Wow. So that's the whole history of Can-Am. It sort of makes sense, though, now that I think about it. Yeah. You know, hearing bits and pieces of how all that was going. It, I never put it together, though, what the location was. Yeah, that's what happened. So if you look up Can-Am now in the... You Google it, it's going to say, uh, first thing that'll come up is that's uh, Tupac Shakur left that studio and drove to Las Vegas. That, on the, that, that was where he came from the night he was murdered. And then if also, if you watch, if you pay real close attention to the movie Straight Outta Compton, is that the name of it? Yeah. It, that was the name of the record, I know. But it's that, you know, the, the story of Death Row Records, really, they show interiors of the studio and they took the sign from outdoors of Can-Am, 
you know, the one that yeah. was on the wall yeah. and they put it inside the control room. Yeah, so yeah. you can see it says CA, you know, I think it says Can-Am recorder still underneath it in, in that movie. Sort of, sort of cool. Is that where you met Michael? Uh-huh. What was the circumstances? You weren't recording him, were you? I was the assistant engineer for the Jackson's Victory album. So different engineers came in and out on that. And one day Michael just came up to me and said, I'd like to come back and do some stuff for me, j just for me without my brothers. Would you be the engineer? And that was in 1983, uh, early 1983, like I want to say spring of 1983. And I worked with him for about a year, year and a half. And those tracks became the Bad Album. And uh, that's where I met John Barnes. And that's, you know, my whole R&B career started Basically, meeting Michael was awesome. It was like right in the middle of the Thriller, well, right at the beginning of the Thriller album, actually, or on the second single. And he was the biggest star in the world, and he was super nice, and it was really awesome. And I went to his house a bunch of times. We went to Westlake and Sunset Sound Factory, and we went all over. Mostly we worked at Can-Am and his house. And um, But but was meeting John Barnes that really propelled my my career forward because that led to me meeting dick rudolph and doing work on the whitney album whitney houston's first album and then dick told me about told elliot shiner about me and elliot shiner started hiring me to be his engineer and then then that that was the stamp of approval when when elliot said i was okay the whole world thought i must be okay so okay well let me ask you about that so Working for Elliot, now, you don't get much better than that when it comes to engineering. No, sir. So, what was it like being under his microscope? He was so generous and so, I, you know what? He liked what I did. I, I'm just, now that you mentioned that, he was just always kind of like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. And when he thought that there was something missing, he would, you know, really, the way you want to be talked to as an engineer in front of the clients, he would, you know make suggestions or give orders, if you will. And of course, I was eager to learn from him. I really didn't have that much experience working with and watching other engineers work. I really only have Dave, I had Dave Jordan, who was my mentor. And I kind of went right from there. I did a couple sessions with Joe Ciccarelli, who was Richard Landis's engineer. Sure. And I really went from there to being the chief engineer at Can-Am, where we didn't really have a clientele. We just had, we had to build one. We had one client, Chris Bannis, Banninger. And so I learned from Chris and I learned from Dave. And that and that was kind of it. I didn't see many other engineers work. And the guys who worked with Michael and I, I got to watch a couple of Van Halen sessions. I think it was Don Smith. Anyway, you get the picture. So anything I could learn from Elliot was so welcome to me because I didn't, I didn't really have like a lot of guys, by the time they get to be a first engineer in my day, had worked with, you know, maybe 25 other engineers and saw a lot of different techniques and different um, approaches to things. I, d I didn't have that. So I loved it. If, if Elliot would tell me anything, I was grateful. Now, of course, Dave Jordan worked on different projects than Elliot worked on. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a difference in technique that you found? No, uh, just, you know, different personalities in the music and different, you know, different personalities behind the board. I mean, Dave was, you know, he was, uh, 
a rock and roll guy, man, he he struggled with certain things, as as you probably you know are well documented. But um, he was a very de- dedicated and technically proficient engineer. He was a bass player, and I've always said that bass players and drummers make the best engineers, and he certainly uh, bore that out. Why do you think that is? Now, if for me, it's because you're certainly aware of what the bottom end should be like, and certainly aware of what the groove should be like. Is, am I right there? Yeah. You, you know from being on stage and from playing it what, what a solid bottom end feels like, and you have heard that magic combination of bot, you know, kick and bass you know, that, that creates a bottom end that you go, oh, <laughs> you know, there I am. Yeah. So you learn to replicate it. You 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 are listening for that. You're 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 waiting till you capture the right balance and right EQ till that happens to you. And then it's like building a, a, a big bell. And and you once you get that bell to sound pure for the you know the whole ring out of it, you're done with your mix, or you're done with your balances for your tracking session. But I, I that I mean that may have something to do with it. I've never heard anybody explain it like that, like a bell, but it makes sense. Yeah. That's the way, I, you know, I, I've, I've, you know, since I uh, started teaching, really had um, fun bringing in some of, a lot of my peers and hear them describe a question the students, uh, as you know, Bobby, you're probably the most foremost uh, educator of all of us in our, in our audio engineering business, but students love to ask the, a lot of questions, but one I always hear is, how do you know when you're done? Mm. How do you know when you're done with the mix? And I've heard some great explanations and some of them match up with mine. Manny said, well, when I first press play, 150 red flags pop up in front of my eyes as I'm listening. And I just go about knocking them all down. And when I don't have any more red flags to knock down, I'm done. And, and I thought that was a great way of saying he yeah. was done. For me, it's I, I, when I hear that bell ring, when I go, okay, this, sound, this sounds like a, a, a finished record. It's, that's my answer. So is that your studio that you're in? It is. It is. I was just trying to get a bell to ring. <laughs> <laughs> so NS10s, you're still using them? Still use the NS10s. You want to hear a good story about NS10s? I do. I was 20, I don't know, four years old, maybe something in there was the 70s. And like I say, I was the guy in the band that did the, did the demos and, and I was looking for speakers to monitor. And do you, do you, are you from LA, Bobby? No, but I've been here a long time. Okay, well, in, in the 70s, there was a stereo, well, a lot of stereo shops, but there was one called Rogers Sound Labs. I remember them, yes. Okay, so they made their own speakers, but they also carried other speakers. So I went there, and I knew I was going to buy a set of uh, JBL. Uh, it was the it was the three the three way twelve inch woofer forty three eleven forty three eleven Bs. I knew I was going to buy those because I had heard those, and I knew I wanted those, but I wanted also a second set of speakers. And you know that Roger Sound Lab was a speaker company, so they had like you see in Vintage King today, tons of speakers. A wired to a patch bay. It's actually not a patch bay, but a switcher. So you could switch amps to speakers and make a bunch of different combinations. So they're bouncing around to all these bookshelf speakers and they hit one. I said, wait, stop. What's that? 
And the guy says, oh, man, these are the, the, we just got these. These are they're from Yamaha. It's like, I, I, you know, we just we just put those up there. I said, play, play that again. I was probably playing uh, a Stevie Wonder record or Earth, Wind and Fire or something like that. And um, and that he played it through. I listened to a whole song through these brand new NS10s just arrived in Los Angeles and I bought them. And those aren't them. But I do have those original ones that I bought back in, I think it was probably 76 or 77, something like that. Wow. So I, I recognized their suitability even when I didn't know what I was looking for. And then years later, you know, er, you know I, I, every studio has a pair. Every studio has a pair. And I didn't even realize that it happened. But that's the way that goes. There are certain things that just resonate with you. There are certain pieces of gear, musical instruments, you know, you know if it works for you or not. Yeah, it, it's true. You were a A&R guy for a while. How did you make the transition? Well, the, I, I, I called my manager, who at the time was kind of like considered by the industry to be a, a, a sort of guru like a yoda for uh executive talent in the label ranks and you know uh his first uh sort of superstar client was michael goldstone and he had bob bortnick and he had a few guys doing that and he had a bunch of mixer producers so um one of those guys tony berg got a job doing a and r for geffen and, you know, we'd met a few times at, you know, a Christmas party here and there and stuff. And he invited me to his office for lunch um, about after he'd been there maybe three or four months. So it was still really new to him and really exciting. And I go to his office at Geffen. It's got a big ante room for his assistant, then a big office for him. And then behind him was another room where he had this newfangled thing, Pro Tools, set up on his computer. And this is this is when Pro Tools was simply an editor. You know, you couldn't record into it. Well, we went out to lunch. I was like blown away. You know, Geffen on Sunset. That's a there were such quaint and beautiful offices and a campus feeling. It was just magical. And um, I got to be really good friends with a bunch of people there over the years. But I, I'll never forget. And you know, you'd walk past that Jaguar dealership on the corner of Dahini yeah. and Sunset. And as I was passing that Jaguar dealership, I had my uh, phone and I called my man or maybe we didn't have phones yet. No, we did. I had my phone in my hand and I called this guy, my manager. And I said, I want to do what Tony's doing next time. There's a job for A&R, uh, throw my hat in the ring. And a couple things popped up ra rather quickly, actually. And, uh, one of them was RCA New York and they interviewed me and I got the job. And, um, I did A&R for about 16 years, uh, most of them at RCA. Well, that's how, yeah, that's how I got the job. How I became an A&R person, you know what it's like, Bobby, we're, we're hermits. We basically don't see people except for in those days, we, you'd see your assistant and every once in a while, like more, more than, than do now, even pre-COVID, uh, clients would come to the studio, but mostly you were in a, in a windowless room for 10 hours a day, every day. And I started instead of going home at night, listening to talk radio after, you know, 10 hours in the studio, I started going out to nightclubs. Uh, and this was in the early nineties. We had hits magazine and all you had to do is buy a hits magazine and you'd read Karen Glauber's 
you know, what's in town this week. I can't remember the name of her column, but she wrote a column in each hits magazine, uh, naming five or six bands that were playing in LA that week. And she'd name the the time, the place, the day. And, you know, I would just take those, I I would take her advice and go to a show three of the five nights during the week. I wouldn't go out on weekends. And I, you know, I basically just wanted to be with people. But what I ended up doing was hearing all the kind of buzz. That was the name of her column, Buzzworthy, I think. Yeah, yeah. All these buzz bands, maybe it's called buzz bands, that were in L.A. from all over the country, you know, and all the A&R people would be in town and we would be in the club. All the L.A. A&R people were reading the same thing I was and they were going to check out. Plus, the lawyers had probably told everybody and all, you know, the way things used to be done. And so I got to know a bunch of A&R people. It didn't do bad for me getting work either. You know, they'd mm-hmm. see me out and they go, oh, hey, I need a mixer. Funny you should, you know. So that was really good for my networking as a mixer. Plus, um, when it came time to ask the staff, the president of RCA asked, uh, hey, does anybody here have an opinion on Brian Maloof? I'm thinking of hiring him. Well, Bennett Kaufman raises his hand. Oh, I see him. He's out all the time. I see he's he's already an, he's already an A&R guy. And that's again, that's what I tell my students. You know, you want to do the you want to do the job, start doing the job before anybody's even paying you or paying attention to you, just start doing the job. And you know what? Somehow it'll turn into something. But Brian, your mindset is different though. When you go from being a studio rat to um, a record exec, Mm. it's a completely different approach to life. How did you manage that? I think partly because I, I have that right brain, left brain thing going. I do love and have opinions about all kinds of music i do um it's hard to it's hard to explain but i know a lot of people that try to transition from the studio to the boardroom don't have a good time and they don't like it i don't know why i liked it so much but it was a challenge to me and i think all that time going into the clubs i felt like i had a i was armed with some pretty good like baselines for what was you know okay i like a lot of things but some things are really special and from seeing all those bands come through town i felt like i think i can identify if i hear it something special so it was just a way frankly to it was an experiment you know i i fell in love with tony's lifestyle he was like i felt like i was walking into like a king's you know castle and um, I thought, well, shoot, I think I could do this, you know. And I had become really good friends with David Anderley. He was one of the other, A&M was one of the other companies that was interviewing me. They didn't offer me the job, but RCA did. And I think it was just moving, the combination of moving to New York, starting over again, uh, you know, in a whole new city. And uh, it was really... It was so refreshing. I just really dove into it. And there was so much new stuff going on. And, you know, that was the golden era, man. That was, we were flush. We, we were printing money in the, in the record business. You know, everybody yeah. was buying their collections the second time and albums. It was still, that was the way to purchase and, and, and own music, album sales. And there was nothing we couldn't do. So what brought you back then? Well, Partly what brought me back was not getting my contract renewed at RCA. 
and not really, I, I did, I'd got another job right away at Columbia, but I could see that the music business was in trouble, frankly. This was 2005 and Napster was in full swing for about now about a year and a half at that point. Labels didn't seem to have an answer. And I realized I had to, I had three children, you know, and a wife and a house. And I had to go back to producing to make money, you know, along because the Columbia job wasn't a full-time job. It was a part-time job, consultancy. And so then I, um, I asked my boss, Will Botwin, if I could move to L.A. And I had a two-year contract with Columbia, and he said yes. And, and I moved back to L.A. for the second year of my contract. And then that entire executive staff got blown out. And when they got blown out, I, I was the baby in the bathwater, you know, uh, sort of, what's the word, rhetorically or uh, literarily speaking. And um, I really had to be a full-time producer again. And uh, luckily, I, I foresaw that coming. And L.A. afforded me the ability to have a home with a yard and a studio in it. So I could be home with my family and still earn money and still work. And that was really the beginning of me uh, uh, working in the box in Pro Tools was when I moved to L.A. in 2005. That's pretty early to get into it, actually. So how did you make that transition? Because that was very difficult for a lot of older analog guys like us. It, it was. Um, uh, and I'll tell you, there was two things. This, this is the desk I bought, this uh, DigiDesign D-Control. And I felt like I still had an instrument to play because of the knobs and faders. Yeah. I had also this new, I found this, well, they found me waves did a model of the loss of the solid state logic dynamics and EQ module. Right. And somehow they got a hold of me. I don't even remember how Mike Shipley, myself, um, Ken Andrews and Eric Zobler. The four of us, four different genres of music, went to Westlake Studio D on SSL E-Series, and we did a mix. We did a three-hour mix using nothing but the console and one reverb and one delay. Gave us three hours. Thanks very much. They replicated the settings on the SSL in this newfangled modeled plugin, and then asked the world tell us which is which. <laughs> and of course they gave me a, the uh, whatever bundle, the big bundle was and thank, as a thank you for doing that for them, um, Mercury bundle. Yeah. So I got the SSL and you know what? I thought if I twist that knob, the same way I've been twisting these knobs for the last 20 years on SSLs, the, the right sound comes out of the speaker. That's, it blew my mind. So the transition and the timing of this console being introduced and that SSL modeled Waves plugin is what gave me the confidence to transition uh, to being a in the box guy. And so a, lo a long time, I basically used um, uh, the, that SSL, that Waves bundle was all I used along with stuff from Avid and McDSP. And um, uh, th those are the only plugins I used uh, for a long time, maybe a couple of years. And then, of course, got really interesting. 
Are you totally in the box or do you have a hybrid type of setup? Here's what I do, Bobby. I, I have some of my old favorite compressors and EQs and preamps. You, can, you can't see them, but they're down here and there's some more over there. And when there's a sound that I know I want and I'm not going to get it unless I run through my shit, you know, through a wire and a cable, I go out, I go into the gear and I come back in printed. So I don't run hardware while I'm mixing, but I print back into Pro Tools what has once gone through the hardware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I don't know if that qualifies as hybrid or not, but um, I, I would say if I had to answer that question, I say I'm totally in the box. But I do quite almost every song, I go out into one of these or two or three of these guys and, and come back in. Of course, it's not a problem for recalls because you've already printed it, so it's not a big deal. That's why I do it. I, I, I really can't. I don't. I can't afford the brain cells or the time to do any resets anymore. That was never fun. <laughs> no, I, I lost a lot of brain cells because you know the shit would never come back. Right? Yeah, I know. It would be maybe you were lucky. It would be eighty-five percent, and that fifteen percent nearly drove me nuts. You know. No, I hear you definitely. What is your best mixing trick? Is there something that you do on nearly every mix? I, I listen from someplace other than where I sit most of the time. I think that's my best mixing trick. I really do. <clears throat> you sit back, you sit a little off center, so you're hearing things in mono. I, I have an iPad with, you know, the controller on it so I can stop and play back and I can even do rides. And that, that perspective, getting away and, and not being in the sort of the microscopic ver, you know, view of, of the music that, that you're in when you're working, I think that perspective really kind of polishes. And I do that with every mix. A couple passes, three or four passes. Again, those last two or three red flags like Manny uh, described, to get those last two or three red flags out, I almost always do it from someplace other than the mix position. You don't go down the hall or anything, do you? I, I, I go into the kitchen, yeah. Okay, same thing. Yeah. Tell me about Juki. So Juki is, well, it's a music platform. We have it on a mobile app and we have it on the web. It's an extension of my life as an A&R person. Um, it's a desire to, you know, find something that nobody else has found yet before anybody else does and develop it and present it to the world. It's a way for uh, people in countries that don't benefit from being in a LA or a New York or a London, you know, some a Nashville, some center of uh, Western music. That doesn't mean they don't live in musical communities though. And it also doesn't mean that there's the story of their neighborhood and the story of their lives uh, should be kept a secret. Yeah. So we wanted to make a really kind of egalitarian, just place where really uh, in not inexperienced as writers, but perhaps uh, people not exposed to the industry side um, and don't really even have a clue of how to get a song up on Spotify or on uh, any of the streamers and just something really easy that they could just get opinions, you know, see how their song does in this, I think we have something like, uh, did you, I don't know if you had a number recently because it keeps growing. It was nearing 100,000 
people using it. So you can, you know, you can get some opinions pretty quickly. You get feedback on your songs and, you know, we have these contests that uh, incentivize people, you know, we just, I just did the, the session with Kim was at Capitol, our winner, our very first contest winner finally got to fly from, you know, uh, Ohio to LA was been waiting all this time because of COVID. And we just did her session yesterday. We did one of two. We'll do the next one on Friday. So she's here in LA now. We've put her with some songwriters. We've put her with some uh, meetings with A&R executives and publishing executives and managers so that she gets uh, some uh, nice advice and counsel from people in the business that she normally wouldn't be exposed to if she lived, if she just stayed in Ohio and had nobody to introduce her to these people. So we're just trying to grow a community of basically, frankly, you know, you, you might say novices, but we get some really professional sounding stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and there, there is a business model um, that will be unique to our platform that we're really excited to roll out. Um, and that's coming in the next few months. But first, we wanted to get things off the ground just by building a, um, a community of creators and fans. So there's an A&R aspect to it. You know, you can be an A&R person. You can predict you, you, that we call them hit hunters or the hit hunter program. And users uh, who aren't songwriters can say, okay, I've just listened to today's t 20 new songs that came up on the platform today or however many there are. This one's going to be the highest. This one's going to be, you know, and they pick the, where they're going to rise up to in the charts. And the more correct you are you get prizes cash prizes for being a good a and r person too so instead of dumping a whole ton of money into marketing like in traditional ways uh, you know you don't see juki popping up on your browser but we're doing this word of mouth through the contest and and uh, and people are fascinated by it. and we've had you know we've given away i don't know more than a hundred thousand dollars to wow. all the different it's a great idea. I especially like it from the standpoint of the amateur A&R. Yeah, that's one, that's one of the points of difference of our platform, but the big one is coming, the big point of difference, and it's going to be very interesting. Okay, it's something you can't talk about then. Only because that's not my side of the thing, and I'll say something wrong. I'm not really a finance guy, and, and um, it's, it's a finance thing, so... I'm just going to, I'm just, I don't want to step in any mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But it's going to be exciting. It's the thing I'm really excited about. Well, when it's ready, keep me in the loop. If you don't mind. I will. I'd be happy to. One of the things I really like prior to COVID, I would do a lot of traveling all over the world. And I especially like listening to whatever the indigenous music is. Yeah. And one of the things that I've found interesting in, in the last bunch of years is the fact that for a while, it was trying to imitate what was happening in the West, especially. And now it's not their influences for sure. But now the each community, no matter where you go in the world, is pretty developed in the music community. Yeah. Where they're making their own music, they're doing their own recordings, and they're really good. Sounds really good. It's really fun to hear these things. Yeah. It, it, it's real again i'll say it again it's really fun to hear stories from these parts of the world that you don't necessarily can easily find any other way but um 
we, you know, we had a winner from the United States from, we've had two or three from Africa. We had two or two from South America, two or three from South America, from Kazakhstan, from, I mean, you know, all over the world. It's, it's, it's pretty popular actually this platform in, uh, in Europe and in Asia and Africa more so than here so far. This is the hardest market to break into United States, but we're doing like great in the rest of the world. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I'll definitely have to check it out. It's fun. Last question, Brian. Thanks so much for your time today. This is great. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Hey. And we can go on and on, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's a we could we could probably talk for a couple of days. It's really an honor to meet you finally. I've you know, I've read your name my whole life practically <laughs> like Well, likewise. Likewise, I've, I've followed you too. So what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or perhaps someone imparted to you? Well, the best business advice, I think I've, I sort of, I sort of did it by accident and, and I realized it at the moment what it was and the most, and so I guess I gave this advice in a way to myself, do something extraordinary as you're starting off life in your new chosen career. And that doesn't mean, you know, find a platinum act and sign it from their garage. And what it means is if the studio needs mic cables made and you get locked out of the studio, but you've got your soldering kit with you and, and the raw materials sit in the hallway till the, till your uh, mentor comes through and make the mic cords that you would have been doing had, had you not gotten locked out. And when I saw the look on Dave's face when he walked in seeing me do that, I realized I had done something extraordinary in his eyes. And that gave him confidence in me that was un has, is still unbroken. And what that said to him was that I was a worker and I was not, I was not going to stop at anything. And, and so I guess how this, this, this is another phrase. I can't remember how I heard this, but how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, take the most menial task and do it like a superstar would do it, people will start to think, well, if they did that so good, I bet you they do everything. And if you kind of then follow up, as they are getting to know you with that work ethic and that frame of mind, you, you're noticed and you are rewarded. And it's a great habit to get into in your life. And it, it, it finds its way into everything, being a great parent, being a great uh, sibling, being a great son or daughter. You know, it's, it's how you do anything is how you do everything. That's, I like that one. You can find out more about Brian at brianmaloof.com. That's Brian Maloof, M-A-L-O-U-F, Brian Maloof, all one word, dot com. And the Juki Music Awards at jukiawards.com. That's D-J-O-O-K-Y, awards, A-W-A-R-D-S, jukiawards.com. Thanks for listening and being on my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com or you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. 
At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.